Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The pandemic has dominated our lives and changed a lot of things, including the priorities politicians needed to focus on over the last year. But there's some legislative business in Connecticut that must happen as part of the job of lawmakers, and that's passing a new two-year balanced budget. Today we hear more about the majority Democrats' revenue and spending plans. How do their proposals stack up next to Governor Lamont's budget plan? And what will each side need to compromise on? Later this hour, we'll hear from Connecticut Mirror budget reporter Keith Faniff. But joining us first on Zoom, Democratic State Representative Sean Scanlon. He represents Branford and Guilford. He's also the co-chair of the Finance Committee, which oversees taxation and state revenue. Representative Scanlon, welcome back to the show. Lucy, good morning. Good to be here. Now, listeners, if you have a question about how uh, these revenue and spending plans come together, you can join us as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Coming up later, we'll also hear from State Senator Kathy Austin, who's the co-chair of the General Assembly's Appropriations Committee, which oversees state spending. So first, Representative uh, Scanlon, uh, let's talk about the Finance Committee and the work that you and your colleagues uh, have done. Uh, the Connecticut Mirror's Keith Faneff reporting there are about $600 million in tax increases in each year of this two-year budget plan. The state's also getting $2.6 billion in pandemic funding from the federal government. And there's also a record high rainy day fund. So why the need for tax increases now? Well, historically, Lucy, people have talked about increasing taxes because they need to plug a deficit hole in the budget. What I'm talking about is modest tax increases in order to cut taxes for a tremendously more amount of people and would see a slight increase in their taxes. And for me, when I took this job back in January, I set out to do something that people haven't really tried too often because it's really hard, um, and that's tax reform. If you look at you know, what's called a tax incidence study, basically studies how proportionally people pay their taxes, those who make less than $50,000 pay about 25% of their income in state and local taxes, whereas people who make over $5 million pay about 3%. That is very disproportionate. And one of the things that I set out to do as chair of this committee is to actually change the tax code in a way that lowers taxes for the middle and working class uh, and ask those of us uh, in our state who have done really well during the last year to pay just a little bit more. So let's talk about uh, those proposals a little bit more uh, in depth, Representative Scanlon. So when we think about lower income working people in our state and for families, uh, your proposal has new state income tax credits. So how will these work? Well, I heard loud and clear from people um, as both a new dad myself um, and as somebody who um, is from a generation that's starting to have kids that it's really, really expensive to raise a child in the state of Connecticut. 
Um, it, it costs on average about $15,000 annually just to care for that child. And if you're the median family income in Connecticut, Lucy, that's about 18% of your entire income. If you're a minimum wage worker in Connecticut, it's about 75%. And I think that when we talk about growing Connecticut uh, and making Connecticut better, something that all of us obviously want, one of the ways that I think we can do that is to make it more affordable for middle class and working class people. And by instituting a state child tax credit, we can cut taxes for that median family by 40%. That's a really big deal. And I think that, that would matter a lot to families here in Connecticut in terms of them deciding whether they can stay here, open up a business, um, maybe do some of the work that they've put off for a while. Um, all that stuff, I think, will give them the confidence that Connecticut is the right place for them to raise their family. Hasn't the governor said that this uh, idea of uh, income tax credits uh, for lower income working uh, families and individuals, that that should come from from the federal government? Yeah. And look, you know, my congresswoman is Rosa DeLauro. She's amazing. And she just succeeded uh, after a really long time of fighting to increase the child tax credit at the state level, at the federal level. And she's working right now to make that permanent. But I don't have to tell you or any of your listeners that Washington is pretty dysfunctional and they really cannot uh, get out of their own way when it comes to actually finding common ground to pass bills. We can in Hartford, and that's what makes Hartford unique. And that's why I proposed this bill back in January, because I really believe that um, parents especially, um, you know, we're talking about this bill, Lucy, would impact 832,000 children in the state. Um, that is so significant to me. And I think that Again, we always talk about how we can make Connecticut better. This is one way that I think we can do that. Again, you're hearing Representative Sean Scanlon. He co-chairs the legislature's finance committee. As we talk about the proposal uh, they've put forward as uh, the legislature works towards uh, making or meeting a new two-year balanced budget. If you have a question about the process, you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So you mentioned these uh, new state income tax credits, but how are you going to pay for it, Representative Scanlon? Well, Lucy, if we did a 2% capital gains tax, meaning that anybody who makes a lot of their money in terms of income on Wall Street uh, would pay an additional 2%, meaning that instead of paying 6.99 right now, they would pay 8.99, that raises about $262 million a year. And if we took that $262 million a year, we can pay for both the first year of my child tax credit, which again, impacts 832,000 children, and we can expand the earned income tax credit, which is a really important tool to keep people working, uh, the working poor from 23% where it is now to 40%, which would be the second highest in the entire nation for that tax credit. That cost about 76,000 or $76 million. So do the math, Lucy. The capital gains tax only impacts about 30,000 taxpayers in the state who are all making over $500,000 a year. And by asking those 30,000 to pay just a few percentages more, we can help 832,000 children and 195,000 working adults. And so I go back to what I said when I started this job in January. I want to change the tax code to help more people. And by any stretch of the imagination, helping over a million people by asking just 30,000 to pay a little bit more seems like a good deal for the state of Connecticut on a net basis. 
Your committee is also proposing a new consumption tax. Explain that. Well, that's a proposal that my co-chair, Senator Fanfara, has really been championing. And his idea about that is that um, sometimes the state sales tax is not, uh, you know, sort of equitable in the sense that it doesn't capture a different rate for somebody who makes $10,000 a year versus somebody who makes $10 million a year. Um, I'll leave it to him to explain his proposal. But for me, my focus, Lucy, is really on tax reform, changing the way we tax people in Connecticut so the middle class and the working class do not continue to pay the disproportionate burden of taxes, because I think it's what's really hurting Connecticut more than anything else in the state. So this is uh, Senator Fonfara's proposal, the new consumption tax is kind of like an extra charge on the income tax for people with high incomes. Is this something that you don't support? Representative Scanlon? I support the fact that we have to talk about what Senator Fonfara is talking about, which is, you know, the primary reason he's putting forward that tax proposal is because he wants to try to address inequity by investing in communities that have been underinvested in. And that is something I support. Um, how we fund that proposal, I think, is a conversation we need to do a little bit more work on. But I did support that at a committee to keep that going, and, and the senators worked hard on that. It's been something he's very passionate about for years, representing Hartford, and I, I do think it's an important topic that we need to talk about. But there may be other ways to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, the proposal again uh, to increase uh, the capital gains uh, surcharge you mentioned would impact about thirty thousand uh, people in our state. You know the governor's response whenever he hears uh, anyone in the legislature talk about tax hikes on wealthy people, uh, the 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 argument that they will then move to states with lower taxes. Inevitably, that'll impact our state in terms of the tax revenue that we can collect. And so how do you expect to reach a compromise on this issue? Because the governor has been very clear he doesn't support it. Well, I think what we put out of committee by and large is the framework for a potential compromise with the governor. And look, I, I get along well with the governor and, and we certainly talk about stuff all the time. And, and I think um, the divide that's being sort of talked about between the progressives and moderates is a little bit more exaggerated than it actually is. We agree on 90% of the things that are in this budget package. The question is, how do we get that extra 10%? And I guess what I would say is that um, I feel like this budget and where I think we may end up is, is a really tricky balance to find, but it's an important one, Lucy. And the balance to me is both meeting the moment when it comes to recognizing that the last year has been really difficult for a lot of people in our state and the last, 20 years has been really difficult for those middle class people too. And that's why I think we need to give them a tax break. Um, but I also do understand that the governor is saying he doesn't want to squelch any of the progress that we've been making. And we have been making tremendous progress, right? We have the best bond rating upgrade in 20 years. We have record rainy day funds. We have people moving into Connecticut. All that is great, but we, we need to make sure we're caring for the people who are already here. And I think what we put forward, uh, again, asking for a modest increase for those who are doing really well at this time, given what the stock market's been doing in the last year, I think is not too much to ask and finds the balance, Lucy, that I think is so important for us to find, both not rejecting uh, the influx of people who are coming here from New York, but also not rejecting the needs of our people. And I would just say, Lucy, that you know sometimes when we hear people saying, well, this is gonna drive people out of Connecticut, I don't think there's a, this monolithic block of people who all decide to do uh, you know, something like move out of Connecticut together simply because of one thing. I think there's a lot that goes into it. 
And I think if those folks are paying attention, Connecticut is moving in the right direction. A lot of that is due to the governor's leadership. A lot of that is due to policies we put in place together as Democrats and Republicans in the 2017 bipartisan budget. And I think we're going in the right direction, which is why people will continue to move here, uh, despite the fact that we're asking those at the top to pay just a little bit more. Mm. You know, there's new census data that show Connecticut is the slowest growing state in the Northeast. Uh, we never covered our uh, the jobs fully after uh, the recession. And so when people around the country think of Connecticut as a high tax place, uh, you know, how does that impact, uh, you know, the messaging in our state and some of the proposals to make the type of progress you're talking about, Representative Scanlon? Well, that's exactly why I'm talking about tax cuts, Lucy, because, and I'm talking about them for over, about a million people in the state of Connecticut, because I think when we have that reputation, of course it hurts us. But what's the best way to counter that reputation? By cutting taxes for a million people, uh, by cutting the average state income tax liability for a family living in Meriden with two children making the median income in Connecticut by 40%. That's a big deal. And I think that that is what the kind of thing that people feel like we just haven't done enough of in Connecticut. That proposal that I put forward, the child tax credit, uh, along with the air and income tax credit, is the largest income tax cut in the history of the state of Connecticut. Uh, I think that that's a really big signal that we're sending, not just to the people who live here, but to people who live all across the country, that Connecticut is changing their policies. And yeah, over 10 years, we did not have good growth. But I think if you look at the last year, especially with the revenue coming in, we've turned a corner and we now need to keep our foot on the gas. And one way that I think we could do that is to make Connecticut a more affordable place for the middle and working class families like the one that I grew up in. Representative Scanlon is just on for a couple more minutes. If you have a question, 888-720-9677. Uh, Scott tweeted at us, the budget being proposed has a very similar look to the 2015 budget, which promised tax breaks to the lower and middle class while also providing more funding to municipalities. Scott writes, 2015 budget walked back everything. What is to prevent people calling this new budget plan a shell game? How do you respond to that? Well, I voted against the 2015 budget, so I don't really know <laughs> that I can, uh, you know, answer too much about that. But but listen, what I would say is, um, you know, people in Connecticut have every right to believe or be skeptical about politicians because for years, Democrats and Republicans have definitely broken many promises that we've made to people. And that's what I think Scott is alluding to. Um, I think we have to judge people by what they put forward now um, and what they continue to keep putting forward. So if we put forward this package and we cut these taxes by 40% and we decide to scale that back down the road, shame on us and you should call us out. And you should call me out, Lucy, if I personally am anywhere part of that. But I think this proposal is so significant, it's so big, um, that it would really be hard for us to go back on our promise. The big piece of the 2015 budget was MRSA. To this day, six years later, Lucy, that's never even been implemented. I have this plan being implemented next year because people need this relief right now. And I think uh, there will be a big difference between the 2021 budget and the 2015 budget, simply in the fact that this relief starts now, and it's not something that's going to have uh, a promise down the road. Again, you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, I, I wanted to just fit in a call. Uh, Josh is calling in from Glastonbury. Josh, can you be quick with your question? Josh, are you there? Oh, looks like you can't hear me. So we're going to have to say goodbye to State Representative Sean Scanlon. Again, he's co-chair of the legislature's Finance Committee. Representative Scanlon, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. 
Thanks for having me on, Lucy. Again, coming up, we're going to talk more about uh, the legislature's uh, new two-year budget plan and how they'll reach compromise with Governor Lamont. One of the co-chairs of the Appropriations Committee, Senator Kathy Austin, will join us after the break. You can join us, too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from State Representative Sean Scanlon about how the majority Democrats in the legislature are working towards a revenue plan in the next two-year budget. There's also the spending side of the state budget to hear how that's shaping up. Joining us now on Zoom, State Senator Kathy Austin. She's co-chair of the General Assembly's Appropriations Committee, which oversees state spending. She represents 10 towns on the eastern side of Connecticut. Senator Austin, welcome back to the show. Uh, Good morning, Lucy. How are you today? I'm doing okay. And our listeners, again, can join us with the question 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Before we get into the state budget, I just wanted to bring up this bill that was uh, voted by the state Senate that would phase out a religious exemption to school vaccine requirements. Uh, On the floor of the Senate, you told a story about your experience with the swine flu while you were serving in the military in the 1970s. And this uh, led to Again, your uh, vote against this bill uh, that would phase out the religious exemption. Can you talk more about about that vote? Uh, Sure. You just uh, actually said everything I said, so um, not much more to say uh, to that other than I think that it's a personal choice. And um, when you're in the military, you actually uh, are subject to what the military tells you uh, what to do. At least that's the way it was back in the 70s. And uh, um, I... uh, was pregnant and uh, when the swine flu shot came out and I chose not to have that and uh, told my um, superiors that uh, I would not take that based on the fact that I was pregnant and I felt that people should still have that choice today. Mm-hmm. And that's essential, uh- essentially it. Although I still consider the joining the military as the single best decision I ever made three days mm-hmm. after I turned 18. Uh, you mentioned that this experience, um, because you were able to choose, you want to give parents the ability to choose. But, you know, in this last year, we've seen how politicians have really had to think about uh, the role of public health. And when we see that there's so much misinformation out there about, about vaccines, I mean, does that concern you at all that you know some of the people who may have come out to say we need this religious exemption uh, because we don't believe in the science behind the vaccine is a reason for them not to get their child immunized? Actually, I talked to many people in my district and they believe in the science. They also believe in choice. And unfortunately, uh, the religious exemption has been used by people uh, throughout time, not for religious reasons, but for personal reasons. And we don't have a mechanism in that. In addition to that, um, uh, quite frankly, the medical exemption is almost impossible to get even if your child has uh, had an allergic reaction uh, to um, uh, vaccines. So I, I just think that there needs to be a, me- a better mechanism. And I think there needed to be far more work done on this piece of legislation. Mm. Before we move on, it sounds like the, the 
children who have that religious exemption, it's been grandfathered in um, as long as they've already been enrolled in school. And I, I, I understand uh, that uh, medical exemptions, uh, that has been relaxed a little bit, how to get that medical exemption. So how do you feel about those, uh, those two um, parts of, of this uh, legislation that's now going to head to Governor Lamont's desk? I'm sure the governor's going to sign it. He's already committed to signing the bill. Uh, I think there needed to be far more work done to uh, get buy-in from people. Uh, I don't think that um, that that component of it was done. Again, that's uh, Senator Kathy Austin, uh, who voted against uh, phasing out the religious exemption, uh, that bill now going to Governor Lamont's desk. Uh, I wanted to move on because uh, we had invited you originally uh, because you are co-chair of the Appropriations Committee, and we wanted to talk about the work that you and your colleagues are, are doing. Uh, and so I wanted to start when we think about uh, just in the last year how uh, COVID has really taken a toll, not only uh, taking away people that we love and impact in our communities, but uh, just the enormous cost uh, for municipalities to respond to this public health emergency. And so when you look at your spending plan, and how does it respond to COVID-19? It responded to COVID-19 in a variety of ways. Uh, this budget was uh, a long-term plan. Uh, my co-chair and I, uh, Representative Walker, had started working on the budget over the summer uh, to gather data, and we used that data to um, uh, foster a plan that uh, would uh, help municipalities out, help the people of Connecticut out, help um, uh, jobs out, uh, so that we can strengthen uh, where we're moving forward on. So, uh, for example, one of the things that we did was uh, commit to the 2017 plan on rolling out ECS. Uh, the governor had held uh, uh, education harm uh, hold harmless uh, that would have created a hole in two years and it would have falsely uh, given some municipalities more dollars than they were actually uh, due to based on the formula but it would have penalized those poorer communities that had, had seen a greater impact of covid uh, so we uh, went to the plan that we had in 2017 and continued the rollout there uh, we also completely funded debt-free college uh, because we recognize that people are going to be moving from one career to another career and they were going to need additional skills. And we fund that in uh, both years with a plan uh, to not create a hole in uh, the outlying years by using the uh, dollars that will be raised by iLottery. Uh, we also, um, uh, you know, I, I listened to uh, my colleague from the House and uh, point out that we do uh, use the MRSA plan to fund the pilot program, finally meeting that commitment that uh, was started in 2015 and fully fund the pilot program that uh, passed in the General Assembly on a bipartisan basis just about two or three weeks ago. And that will bring additional dollars into every municipality uh, making sure that nobody's making less than what they were making. That's an important component of this to stabilize our municipalities. So both education cost sharing and pilot um, uh, funded to the level they should be. Uh, in addition to that, one of the biggest components of this budget is finally funding our nonprofits. Our nonprofits mm -hmm. are where we have transferred many state services into the private sector. And uh, those private sector do uh, 
uh, jobs are supported by state funding. Uh, and we have uh, basically held them flat and uh, they have been um, held together virtually by duct tape and string, having their workers uh, qualify for um, uh, food stamps and heating assistance and uh, healthcare through the state government. Uh, so uh, we funded uh, the nonprofits with a $50 million influx of cash in the current year and then fully fund, uh, uh, we start catching them up to where they should be with uh, another $50 million in year one and year two. And we have a seven year plan to get them to where they should be. So uh, Senator Austin, Senator Austin, you've mentioned several things. So I just wanted to, to jump in. Uh, so how are how is this going to be paid for? Uh, we got a tweet from a listener who sees this as just uh, reliant on non-recurring revenues. We know that Connecticut has long uh, funded uh, pension liabilities and deficits uh, in the out years. And I know that the state's gotten mm-hmm. a lot of money from the federal government. But how do you keep this going if you, if you have these proposals uh, to fund these particular services? Good question, uh, because uh, we don't, uh, on the funding side, again, uh, finance has its own package. Mm -hmm. Uh, We stayed within the confines of what the governor had proposed as a revenue side of the package. Um, uh, We uh, uh, did uh, some, uh, the governor had put the marijuana um, expenses in the budget. We haven't even realized uh, a bill that supports marijuana, but we uh, believe that whatever revenue we get in should support all of the expenditures and not put that on the backs and belay uh, handling some of the other things that we had. Um, relative to um, pilot, we fund that with a half a percent of the sales tax as originally designed for the MRSA back in 2015 and segregate those dollars directly for that so that we don't have to deal with this issue again, uh, keeping it Uh, off to the side so it's not a general fund expenditure or a general fund um, revenue source. Uh, The um, education, uh, we um, uh, put $101 million extra into education. We think that our children need that additional education support, in particular in the areas that uh, were being shorted year after year uh, because uh, they had not been funded correctly, which is usually our poor rural communities and our for urban communities. Uh, so um, we uh, took care of, of that also. Um, we uh, uh, actually, the whatever the finance committee does with eventually with their um, spending package, uh, their revenue package, uh, if we stick to what we just have, this uh, budget will be supported by the dollars that we currently have uh, coming in. Uh, we also, um, Uh, we'll be able to uh, continue to pay down our pension liabilities, uh, which was uh, pushed off by the governor's budget. And we uh, continue paying that as it should be paid. So we're not pushing it off. We we think that that should be what we should be doing. We should be paying that down. But the nonprofits is one of the biggest component of this budget that we, uh, where we uh, fund the nonprofits in a seven year rollout to bring them up to the dollars that they have. And these were state services. Uh, For example, right now there are over 700 group homes uh, run by the Department of Developmental Services. uh, And those 700 group homes are private, privately run private nonprofits. 
Uh, only 29 group homes are publicly run now, uh, handling some of the more difficult clients uh, with um, additional staff. Uh, but the 700 uh, group homes also need to be funded so that they can have workers that, that come in. Now, the group homes uh, suffered from COVID. Uh, they require 24-7 staffing, uh, and we need to make sure that um, they have the dollars uh, that they need. Mm -hmm. And we really need to make sure that they're not uh, working with that duct tape and string mm -hmm. uh, uh, thought process, uh, just holding things together and, and making it on a month-by-month -month basis uh, we need a long-term plan to make sure that we're funding the, these programs, which are jobs. A lot of jobs in the state of Connecticut are private nonprofit, mm -hmm. and we need to make sure that we're funding them. And Senator Austin, uh, Josh, who had called in earlier, um, he was able to share on social media what his question was, but he wants to know how health care reform fits into the revenue and spending picture that the majority Democrats have come up with. Uh, what can you tell him? Uh, in, in regards to the budget, and healthcare, we uh, funded um, our uh, our um, uh, local health districts at a level that they had not been funded um, ever before, uh, increasing them. We counted on them during uh, COVID. This is completely different than the governor's budget, which did not fund them at a greater level. Uh, and so that is one of the things that, that we did. We also put in in our workforce uh, development component of the budget, some additional dollars uh, relative to training uh, more people um, in our healthcare continuum. So from start to finish, we'll uh, be able to feed workers into the pipeline of healthcare. Uh, those are two of our bigger components that we funded in the budget relative to healthcare. I understand that uh, the governor submitted a plan for how uh, the pandemic assistant funds are going to be spent to your, this plan uh, was given to your committee. Uh, and so what do you think uh, of the governor's approach of how this money, this federal money should be spent and why it's important for lawmakers such as yourself to review how the money is spent? Well, we think it's important to bring uh, the general public into how these plans are made. And that's why we passed uh, on a bipartisan basis um, a piece of legislation that required uh, this uh, spending plan to come before the Appropriations Committee so that we could weigh into it just like we weigh into the budget, uh, that there will be a, a public hearing coming up. Uh, we will review that. Uh, we will look at how the governor um, has uh, come up with his plan, but uh, I think our plan will be far more detail-oriented. We want to make sure that it's going into the right spaces. Uh, we are looking at a number of different areas different than what the governor did, um, and uh, looking particularly into how do we bolster workforce development, how do we bolster small businesses. Uh, we are, the governor looked a little bit at the unemployment trust fund, uh, but we want to uh, look at that in a, a, a more comprehensive way. Um, so uh, we uh, actually have been planning for the American Rescue Plan dollars coming in. Uh, Representative Walker and I have um, the uh, the uh, thumbnail of a sketch of a plan on how uh, this would be done. And in some ways we fit in with the governor's uh, plan and in some ways we don't. Uh, before we let you go, uh, Senator Austin, uh, we talk a lot about compromise. And again, uh, the Democrats hold the majority uh, in the legislature. And then you're going to have to 
uh, work with uh, the governor's team on what's going to uh, make it through to this uh, final budget. But there's also Republicans in the General Assembly. Any proposals that they've put forth that uh, you think uh, uh, could be something that also can be negotiated uh, towards? So I'm waiting for their budget to come out uh, from the last uh, three years. So we have not had a Republican budget. That being said, in the Appropriations Committee, uh, the Republicans were involved in every uh, component of the budget development. Uh, We have a subcommittee process. They're in the subcommittee um, uh, meetings. A lot of what they um, had to say is is enveloped into uh, this budget. Uh, They are there when the report outs of the subcommittee chairs uh, are reported out to the chairs, both myself and Representative Walker. So we consider them uh, a, an important piece um, of the um, of the budget process and uh, look forward to working with them. But uh, if they had different ideas, they could put forth their own budget and uh, we would be able to all see what uh, the differences would be between the, uh, the two uh, budget uh, ideas. And that has not happened uh, at all in the last three years. State Senator Kathy Austin again co-chairs the General Assembly's Appropriations Committee. Senator Austin, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Have a nice day. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to check in with Connecticut Mayor Budget Reporter Keith Faniff about what we heard and some other issues uh, before the legislature when we think about this two-year budget plan that they need to negotiate before the end of the legislative session. If you have a question, you can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, we just heard from two legislative leaders who help craft the General Assembly's revenue and spending plans. For more perspective on this, Connecticut Mayor Budget Reporter Keith Faniff joins us now on Zoom. Hi, Keith. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you for, again, joining us. We know you know your stuff about the budget. And so when we uh, talk about um, the General Assembly's committee plan looking to shift some of the tax burden from low-income people in our state to wealthy people, what do you think of some of the proposals coming out of the Finance Committee? That is That is definitely one of the big things that came out of all of this. Um, excuse me, earlier Representative Scanlon said, well, you know, the the progressives in the majority Democratic Party and the fiscally moderate conservatives like Governor Lamont, they agree on 90%. That's true, but it's kind of like saying, you know, we agree on most of the side dishes for Thanksgiving, but one of us wants to have turkey and one of us, you know, (laughs) wants to have jelly beans. What they disagree on is big. Um, As you pointed out, Governor Lamont, unlike candidate Ned Lamont, um, does not believe in paying for tax cuts at the state level with tax increases at the state level. In other words, a redistribution. Mm. He thinks all of that should be done at the federal level, even though he did campaign on a 
on an income tax cut for the poor and middle class that mathematically probably couldn't be provided without raising taxes on the rich. When he got into office and he saw that he couldn't do it without raising taxes on the rich, he simply didn't deliver on the promise. Um, the question now is, his party doesn't feel good about that. And how much do you redistribute? I don't think you'll see as much as the finance committee did, but I think they were putting down a marker to tell the governor, we can't just punt on this. There's got to be something. That, when we that look at is probably the single biggest takeaway I took from this entire budget mm -hmm. debate. When we look at the governor's proposal and then the Democratic lawmakers' plans, uh, how much do they address these long-term financial problems the state faces that we've talked about many times that based on your reporting, Keith, underfunded pension systems for state employees and teachers, or just the fact that we've got this cash-strapped special transportation fund for infrastructure, I guess it might be helped by the Biden administration. Yeah, the, the, the big long-term problems aren't, certainly aren't worsened in this budget. I don't want to give that impression there's no one budget cycle that's going to fix that. Just to give you some perspective, you know, we, we talked about, or you mentioned earlier, we've got a record-setting rainy day fund, $3 billion. We have over $91 billion in long-term debt, half of which is pension debt. Uh, $3 billion against 91 is, you know, a drop and a drop and a drop of a bucket. So uh, we will have pension problems you know, into the 2040s and 2050s. That's not going away anytime soon and no one budget's gonna change that. The special transportation fund, um, we have kind of swept that problem under the rug until after the next gubernatorial election. Uh, there is a proposal for Connecticut to participate in the transportation climate initiative that would raise gasoline taxes a certain extent, and we're basically counting on that money from the Biden administration. And if we need to, we could tap the rainy day fund to keep the STF afloat until after the next gubernatorial race. But that still means as we get into the second half of the 2020s, long-term stability for the transportation fund is in question. Getting back to the split between uh, the, the Democrats and the General Assembly and the governor uh, with these uh, tax proposals. I had asked about this consumption tax proposal uh, to Representative Scanlon, and he, he punted and said that Senator Fonfaro's uh, proposal. Can you talk about that? Because I can't imagine that's something that Governor Lamont's going to back either. Sure. No, that again, you, you, you're hitting on all the most important <laughs> stuff. The split, in fairness, it's not just Governor Lamont. The, the Democratic Party has gained so many seats in Fairfield County. Um, there is a particularly affluent, I mean, I think a lot of reporters forget, if you look at where, I promise I'll make this point quickly, but if you look at where most of the wealth is distributed in the nation, Lucy, not just in Connecticut, but in the nation, it's now in blue states. Very few people think of the Democratic Party as the party of the rich because that's not all they're the party of or they've traditionally not been the party of the rich. But if you're basing it on where the nation's wealth is located, it's in blue states. And that's forcing a shift in the Democratic Party. And we can really see that in Connecticut. Um, because the Democratic Party has picked up so many seats in Fairfield County, there are a lot of Democrats 
who do not want to talk about things that urban Democrats are desperate to talk about, are passionate to talk about, like wealth redistribution. I would say Representative Scanlon, who comes from Guilford, is trying to find sort of middle ground. And without judging either side, um, Senator John Fonfara, the other finance committee co-chair is from Hartford, is I think his strategy is let's go big, put down a big opening bid on redistribution and see what we can get. And so it was John Fonfara who proposed a consumption tax, which as you mentioned, it's, it's kind of like, think of it as a surcharge on the income tax. Originally, and you would only pay it, by the way, if you make so much money. And it's based on the idea that if you make more money, you're probably buying more things and you should be paying a higher sales tax rate. But we can't work that out every time you go to the store. So we're going to get you when you pay your income taxes and ask for more there. But it's based on the, on the assumption that you consume more. Originally, Senator Fonfara wanted to aim that at any individual who was making more than $140,000 a year. Um, that didn't fly with enough Democrats on the Finance Committee. Um, so they set the threshold much higher. If you make more than $500,000 a year, you could face anywhere from an, a surcharge of 0.7% uh, to 1.5%. And I'll give you an example. If a person makes $500,000 a year, they would have a surcharge on their income tax obligation of 0.7%. They'd pay an extra $3,500. But you've got to, again, make $500,000 a year to get that. Um, that is going to provide the revenue that we need or that the state would need to balance its budget if it wants to give an income tax cut to the poor by bolstering the EITC, if it wants to give an income tax cut to the middle class by creating a child tax credit. That's how they're paying for these things because after the pandemic and the federal money goes away, we'll have our own challenges with the pension funds, if that makes sense. Mm. You're hearing Keith Faneff again. He's the budget reporter for the Connecticut Mirror as we talk about the revenue and spending plans that the legislature is working towards. Again, they've got to reach a compromise with Governor Lamont, who's got his own uh, two-year we'll budget proposal. Go so ahead, sorry. go ahead. You just made me think of one thing when you said compromise. I just want to clarify, I really think um, Representative Scanlon and Senator Fonfara ultimately have the same goal, which is to get Governor Lamont to give more than he has in his first two years on providing tax relief for the poor and the middle class and investing more, ultimately providing the resources to invest more of the state budget in things like town aid and health care. They have slightly different, well, they have different strategies. I think Representative Scanlon is, you know, who came out with the child tax credit, uh, who's supporting the EITC is saying, you know, let's sort of come in with a, you know, incremental step. Let's see what we can do, but be firm. And I think Senator Fonfara's strategy is let's make a big ask. And I'm, he hasn't said this. I'm suspecting he might be willing to settle for less than the big ask. I think there are two strategies with very similar goals, which is to make incremental progress. If you have a question for Keith, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Since we were talking about Senator Fonfara, is he also behind uh, this uh, proposal out of the Finance Committee to uh, avoid the spending cap? <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about this fund, this investment fund that's being proposed? Okay. Well, I got to be clear about what we're saying to avoid the spending cap. Yes. I mean, John Fonfara has said 
flat out we should intercept certain revenues. Um, I, I think of the spending cap as um, people imagine it as this line in the sand. Well, if it was a line on the sand on the beach that nobody must ever cross or we shall die, every single day you would see little children running back and forth over it, kicking a ball or carrying a kite. In, in other words, if you imagine how many times the state of Connecticut has carved out exemptions, we have hundreds, Lucy, of off-budget accounts, money that is outside of the spending cap. Um, in the first decade of the 2000s and the, and the end of the 1990s, we legally exceeded the spending cap through another mechanism almost every single year. Um, so the, the, the spending cap was designed uh, not to be this absolute limit. It is very much presented that way by um, state officials who, who choose to do it for political reasons. And if I'm, if I'm going to be completely honest, to a certain extent by a news media that doesn't fully understand it. It is not this absolute line in the sand, but, but getting back to your question, what is Senator Fonfara saying? There have to be certain monies. We already, we already carve out certain monies and say these are priorities and the spending cap's not going to get in the way of them. And he's saying money for the poor cities money for core programs should also not be affected by this spending cap. And so we should carve out some of these revenues for equity in urban areas. And so what has been the response from Governor Lamont, even House Speaker Matt Ritter to this idea, Keith? I have not heard a response from the Speaker. Um, the administration, of course, is very supportive of a of a stricter interpretation of the spending cap. But I would go back to my earlier long-winded statement. I think this is an example of Senator Fondafara bidding high or coming out with an original negotiating position of high and then being able to settle for, for low. Don't forget in the first two years, I mean, again, candidate Ned Lamont campaigned on a very substantial income tax cut for the poor and the middle class. He was faced in fairness with a Republican who was saying he could get rid of the income tax and Bob Stefanowski. And I think he used his own pledge as a shield against that. He got into office. And even though this, his fiscal situation marginally got better, the point I'm making is it didn't get worse. He can't say, well, I got into office and then things got worse so I couldn't keep my promise. Even though things marginally got better in his first year, he didn't deliver on it. And Democrats, I think, felt the heat for that when they came out with a whole series of sales tax increases, a restaurant tax surcharge, taxes on plastic bags. In other words, all regressive taxes aimed at the poor and the middle class. And we already do have tax studies that show they disproportionately face a higher burden. So I think some people in the party are saying, Governor, we can't go along with this. We're all taking the heat for it. Um, they're they're going to force him, I believe, this year to give some ground in this area. And the debate is simply over how much ground. We just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, when I mentioned compromise earlier, what about some of the Democratic lawmakers on the left uh, who see this urgent need to address racial inequalities in, in low-income communities and wanting to see more uh, state investment in these communities. How is that going to play out uh, as uh, the governor's team uh, negotiates with, with lawmakers? 
Well, we've talked that now. I, in fairness, I've talked a lot about finance, but that's mm -hmm. what Senator Austin and, and the folks on appropriations are doing on their side of the budget. Um, you're seeing an expansion of Medicaid eligibility. You're seeing um, additional resources for cities and towns. It doesn't fully keep the, 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 the sales tax, the MRSA, a municipal revenue sharing account promise, but it does keep that fund going. And there's um, between between uh, non-education and education aid, um, there's something over the biennium that's probably more than $350 million in additional money um, going to cities and towns. And you're not going to be able to sustain that after the federal money goes away mm -hmm. if there's not additional revenue coming into the state simply because we know for the next several decades the pension is going to be just consuming so much of the state budget. Um, and if we do go through, well, we will eventually go through another economic contraction. You can either renege on those promises then, or you have the other revenue in place so you can keep the tax breaks for the poor and the middle class, and you can keep the investments in the cities. We're going to have to leave it there. There's still so much more to talk about, but I hope to have you back before the end of the legislative session sometime in June. Keith Fanna, Sounds thank good. you for joining us. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Again, he's budget reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. I think the the legislative session ends June 9th. Uh, I'll be uh, we'll be sure to talk more with Keith and others about this process. And we hope you join us. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Matt Dwyer with help from Robin Doyen Aiken. Tomorrow we hear from Pura's chairman Marissa Gillette. And we're going to talk about the uh, investigation by the regulatory authority after that tropical storm when so many of us lost power. We hope you join us for that conversation. That's tomorrow.